Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Standing on the cusp of a polar vortex, it's election shock therapy. <laughs> I'm Chris Moore, and joining me on the verge of sub-zero weather are... Matt Kukum. And Mitchell Crum, although I should hasten to say that I am not on the verge of sub-zero weather. <laughs> you know, I brought this up specifically so you could troll us, Mitch. Uh, what's the weather <laughs> like in South Carolina? Well, it, I, I do have to say it, it's not super pleasant. So I'm not, I, I can't exactly sort of like say that I'm out here like in shorts and, you know, sunbathing or anything. Diligently applying sunscreen. Yeah, it's very cold down here. Everybody's in, in warm co- coats. I mean, the high today was just 50 degrees. So it is, it is, <sighs> Cute <a> really, high. <laughs> it is just really tough. Um, you, kn- you know that if it was 50 degrees here in Minnesota, we'd be wearing shorts. <laughs> now, in, in in defense of the cold here, it's nothing like up there, but it actually did get cold last night. It did get down into the 20s, so um, which okay. isn't like cold, cold, I know, but it, it at least was, was a respectable cold. Like it wasn't, you know, so. This weekend in Minnesota, it's supposed to get down to the negative 20s. <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> yes. I told my daughter this, and this was, this was her two comments in a row. First comment, guess that means I probably can't play outside then. No, honey, you probably shouldn't. Second comment. Does that mean we can boil water and throw it in the air? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, honey, that is what that means. Just don't throw it into the wind, like all of the, the crazy people that end up on YouTube. So. I did that one time. So I wasn't on YouTube, thankfully. But um, <laughs> I, I have, a, like a lot of Minnesotan houses, I have a second floor walkout. And so it's got the, you know, it's got the, you, your basement has a sliding door in it. And I walked out of my back deck with a pot of boiling water and I threw it in the air and there was just a little bit of a back breeze. And so it, it kind of drifted back to me. By the time it drifted back to me, it was just like getting like fog in the face. Like it froze that quickly. It's really kind of impressive. <laughs> so, but again, don't try this at home. <laughs> well, as, you, as uh, li- assiduous listeners may know, Andrew Bramson has begun his sabbatical. He is also not sending me beach pictures right now, but he did tell me he already has uh, five interviews this week with uh, various uh, church leaders around the Twin Cities on his sabbatical project. So he's definitely letting his chair know that he's do- he's working hard on his sabbatical. But um, we are pleased to bring uh, Election Shock Therapy alumnus, uh, or alum, excuse me, um, uh, uh, Mitchell Crum uh, to join us. And we're going to talk a little bit over the course of the next few podcasts, a little bit more big picture about American politics, a little bit less the day-to-day um, uh, craziness. But real quick, before we get to our big question of the day, guys, what's something that's caught your eye in the past couple of weeks in American politics? What's something you're ruminating on? Uh, well, I could go first. Um, watching the sort of ongoing um, sort of implosion and sort of circular firing squad within the GOP right now. Um, so we're seeing this um, even at the sort of the state and the local level, um, state local party organizations um, 
are basically, you know, firing up to basically um, primary people who have, you know, Republicans who haven't been sufficiently supportive of Trump. There's some interesting, interesting sort of tidbits um, coming out of um, some states like uh, Arizona and Pennsylvania, where there's actually um, registered Republican voters um, who are actually switching their party affiliation um, from the GOP to independent. Um, now we're only talking, you know, five to ten thousand um, people, but but all that happened within basically, you know, nine days of of the the Capitol riot um, on January sixth, and and you know that's that's not a huge number, but um, but if that's sort of indicative of a broader sort of shift of people away from the GOP, um, then then Republicans in these states are going to have some really big problems um, when it comes time for the next general election. So that's one of the things I've been keeping an eye on. Um, what I'm keeping an eye on, sort of going forward, is basically how. Um, uh, how this um, this COVID relief bill is going to shake out and if there's going to end up being any bipartisan support for it um, or if Biden and the the Senate Democrats especially are going to basically go it alone and do a strictly partisan. And I think whether or not this bill has any you know bipartisan support is going to tell us a lot about what the next two years are going to look like. If they can even get a few Republicans on board, make a few concessions to them, there's a little bit of hope. I don't have much hope that it's going to happen, but if it ends up being straight partisan, then I think basically all the hopes for any sort of bipartisan support for anything have just died. Um, so we'll, we'll see. It's just the next the next few weeks will be important, I think. I'll buy that. Mitch, what are you watching? Uh, well, speaking of a couple of things that Matt mentioned here in South Carolina, um, <laughs> our very own representative from the 7th District, uh, Tom Rice, uh, was one of those 10 Republicans who voted in favor mm. of impeachment. And just this last Saturday was censured by uh, the party in the state for his um, for his vote. So that's certainly um, an example of, of something to, to watch here. Sorry, Chris, you look like. I want to follow up with that because uh, I think for our listeners, it might be helpful to remind them of the nature, the political uh, function of censure. Um, so what did the legis- censure requires an act of the legislature. So what does the censure do? Um, so ba- in terms of what it actually does is very little. <laughs> um, functionally, it's basically just a um, slap on the wrist that says we don't like what you did. Um, is essentially, essentially what it boils down to. It just says, you know, it's sort of a, yeah, it's a, it says it says it basically says we don't we don't we we don't we don't think that what you did was was the right thing to do, um, and that's you know that's about it. That's that's about all it boils down to in terms of practice. But it does not bode well in terms of the reelection chances for these folks who who are in this position. Um, it means that the party apparatus is probably going to um, you know support any candidate who runs against them. Uh, things like that. So, you know, the primary challenges for these for these folks will probably be pretty fierce. Um, so, yeah. Um, so that's that's certainly one thing I'm uh, I'm keeping an eye on. I think you know, sort of building off that too. I'm also I've also been pretty struck by uh, Representative, and I'm not sure I'm going to get his name right, but Adam K- uh, K- Kinzinger. Kinzinger, think, yes. Kinzinger, yeah, from, from Illinois. So I've been watching his, um, you know, basically what he's been saying. I think particularly the you know, especially thinking about uh, Bethel and the audience for this uh, podcast, I think his 
particular situation is one to to watch closely since he has tied um, his actions closely to his faith. And he's been talking a lot about how um, his commitment to moral ideals and particularly to the ideal of the truth and the ideals of trying to uphold um, moral norms around the rule of law and things like that necessitated his vote and that he um, feels that, you know, essentially, you know, Christian churches should be, um, you know, supportive of what he's doing and ought to be encouraging their members to also um, be endorsing these kinds of basic um, moral norms rather than encouraging, uh, you know, pure partisanship, which he feels is the only justification for not following um, his, his, uh, his particular path. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, to what extent that, uh, you know, his message of prioritizing faith um, over, over party penetrates um, in American politics today. Um, I don't hold a, a whole lot of hope in that, but nonetheless, uh, you know, somebody with a fairly large microphone is trying. So um, Kinzinger plays a role in this, but I'm actually thinking even more still about the censure votes. Um, we have many votes in, in, in legislatures at the state level as well as the federal level that are considered votes of conscience where parties don't attempt to whip their members in a particular direction. Now, obviously, the, the decision to impeach a president is always a partisan question, but what would a censure uh, citation actually even look like? Is it basically saying, as a Republican, you should have voted to not impeach a Republican president? Um, is it a censure literally of, of not being properly whipped by the party? Or is there something, are they actually making a truth claim about the president's guilt or innocence in this case, I guess? Uh, let's see. Basically, um, um, uh, so, so essentially I'm just reading from the censure itself here, actually from the uh, GOP here in South Carolina. It says, you know, we made our disappointment clear the night of the impeachment vote. Trying to impeach a president with, an, uh, with a week left in his term is never legitimate. Um, and so that's essentially okay. what they were saying. You know, that's essentially okay. what the South Carolina GOP Which is very saying. similar to what uh, 45 uh, uh, GOP senators said in the Senate, which is um, they didn't think that this was a constitutional act. In, impeaching a, pre a president after their term of office or, um, or moving through an impeachment trial after the term of office had ended was not constitutional. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which of course is pretext, but yep. I, I will abstain from ranting. <laughs> so, well, okay, right. uh, fifteen seconds. All so right, go, 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 could go. you imagine the could you imagine the founders would say, you know what, we think that a president, you know, who basically um, colludes to have a foreign government take over the United States, which actually would be a real possibility early in the American history, like collude with Europe to take over. Um, it, Congress, you know, simply wouldn't be within its constitutional means to impeach or remove a president to prevent that from happening. Clearly, the Constitution would allow for that, right? So, like, that would be a dumb argument, right? So, clearly, clearly, it seems to me that that's not what the founders believed. And I've already ranted about sort of the history of, <laughs> of barring people from holding office, being sort of removed, um, you know, being removed shortly before um, leaving office anyway because their terms expired, etc. But, yep. Okay. I'll say more. I could say more, but I, I will. Well, I'll, I'll only add, we have precedents of um, not presidents, but others being um, impeached and then removed from office after their term had ended up to and including um, federal judges. So I right. think this is, yeah. 
I, I'm not sure I buy this argument. I could buy that you think that it's politically inexpeditious um, sure. to remove a president or that, it, that that's not within the well of the American people or something like that. But um, this idea it's not constitutional, I think, doesn't hold a lot of water. Um, all right, guys, looking ahead, what's something people should be, before we get into our big talk, what's something people should be paying attention to that's going to be coming on the pipe here in the next couple of weeks? Um, I'll jump in first here, and I'll say that I think that um, a lot of what happens in the Biden presidency is going to be determined, actually, within this next season. And it has a lot to do with the rollout of um, the uh, coronavirus vaccine. Um, if we see a dramatic improvement in vaccination rates and especially vaccination efficiency and delivery of vaccines to states as well as aid from the federal government to states to get vaccinations out, I think that the Biden administration will look at that as a big accomplishment and something they can run on in the midterms. And if that goes badly, the one thing Biden had really hung his hat on wasn't being charismatic, wasn't being interesting, wasn't being sort of a sexy pick in any kind of way. It was just raw competence. And this is the first chance to either demonstrate that that's true or false. Hmm. Yeah. I'll buy that. (laughs) (laughs) I think the thing I'm going to be watching in the next couple of weeks, um, which I guess we'll get to see here within the next few days, really, is what kind of defense uh, the Trump lawyers mount. Um, uh, you know, folks who are paying attention probably saw that the Trump legal team had a big shakeup um, just a few days ago. And it will be interesting to see what kind of arguments are actually brought brought forward um, in the president's defense. Of course, there's a big question about whether, you know, the, the lawyers will use this as, as an opportunity to try to um, you know, air grievances about the election, uh, or whether they will focus purely on, uh, you know, sort of technical ideas about, you know, was the president, um, you know, actually inciting the mob or whatever, right, based on, uh, you know, looking, you know, parsing through his words or things like that, you know, so, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what, uh, what actually what actually comes out um, from from uh, from them and to see if they see if they try to go down, go down that road. Um, so that's, that's something I'll be, I'll be, um, certainly, certainly paying attention to. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's going to be interesting. Um, I mean, I think they're going to make an argument that his speech is protected by the first amendment, which of course is pretty irrelevant to the actual impeachment charge. Um, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've heard rumors that they're going to be, you know, taking that approach. Um, they'll probably try to defend against, he says, you know, that his, that his, behavior and a speech doesn't rise to the legal sort of definition of incitement, which of course, again, this is not an actual legal trial, right? This is a political decision, right? And they'll also probably, probably address the question like, and we really can't bar him from holding office and do all this after he's left office anyway, because that's clearly unconstitutional. So um, that would be my guess. Um, I, I, yeah, th- sorry. That's, that's, that's sort of the more, you know, quote unquote, sane right. <laughs> path. Right. We'll see. We'll see if that's what they do. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting that apparently Trump's original sort of team of, of five or so lawyers that he had brought on board to defend him basically quit um, just a few days ago because Trump basically wanted them to make the argument that the election was stolen and make that yep. argument, um, you know, testify to that effect um, in the impeachment uh, trial in the Senate. And they basically said, no, we're not doing that. Um, and so basically they they walked. Um, and so now we have a couple of new lawyers um, 
who have interesting backgrounds, and we will see what arguments they make. But Matt, can I tell you why I find that really interesting? In the court of law, if a lawyer um, uh, made demonstrably false claims, they could be liable for perjury. Mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting here is that, and my understanding is, that the Senate impeachment trial is not a trial in the same way could they be held in contempt of Congress if they demonstrably lied? And if, if, if that's unlikely to happen, then it's notable because what that means is these lawyers were unwilling to make these false claims, even if the threat of perjury prosecution wasn't hanging over their head. Right. And yeah, I mean, their contempt of Congress would be the only, I think, book that Congress could throw at them. But I think it's more of just having your professional reputation at stake. Like, it's one thing to testify in Congress and defend a president and to do so. And, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, I mean, it's not crazy to make a constitutional defense of it, right? You can disagree, but it's not crazy to defend him as saying, like, well, this doesn't rise to the level of impeachment or, you know, impeachable offense, or this is not constitutional. It's one thing to do that. That's another thing to go out there and basically... Um, top conspiracy theories. So um, I just, you know, they don't want to touch that with a 20 foot pole. <laughs> so. um, I, I am going interested to see kind of how things pan out with. Um, so Liz Cheney, the, the third ranking Republican in the house of representatives is basically uh, potentially on the chopping block. At least her leadership position is, mm -hmm. um, she is again, one of those 10 members of the house, um, GOP that voted, um, for the articles of the article of impeachment. Um, and there's a lot of members that are basically calling for her, her head, um, more or less. Um, and so basically there's pressure from within the Republican conference to basically demote her. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. That's going to indicate to us sort of what's going on in the internal politics in the house GOP. So we'll see how that shakes out. And then sort of cut the sort of other side of that coin is how they deal with the Marjorie Taylor green um, sort of problem that is hanging over their heads as well. Um, a Republican who is on the other side, you might say the, the complete opposite of Liz Cheney um, green is someone who's been touting conspiracy theories has literally called for the execution of Democrats um, and basically the, 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 the house as a whole, which is controlled by the Democrats basically said, this is unacceptable and we're going to strip her of her committee assignments unless the Republicans go ahead and decide to do that. So we're going to put on Republicans to make that decision. Um, the Republicans have basically been indecisive on that. And so it looks like the democratic controlled house is going to go ahead and strip her of her committee assignments. Um, so yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what the Republican response is to that as well. Yeah. So I I find the kinds of things that Marjorie Taylor Greene is espousing to be re reprehensible and oh, not befitting a elected member of Congress. That said, one of the themes of this podcast we've talked about over and over again is the establishing, maintaining and the breaking of norms. Mm -hmm. And if Senate or if House Democrats strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments and basically make her the most ineffective member of Congress possible by giving her no, no committees to sit on, then um, what's to say that that norm wouldn't erode further and that Republicans, when they seize control of the House in 2022, wouldn't try to do the same thing to some of the most progressive members of, of the Democratic caucus? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And that's that's a tough call to make. Right. Um, 
you know, there's also the concern that, you know, the more you try to strip her down or to marginalize her, the more she'll sort of sort of reframe that as she's a martyr and, you know, this the the system and the you know, the establishment is out to get her and so she'll run against that and use it for fundraising and she's already been doing that. So I mean so there's prudential sort of political arguments as well, in addition to sort of the precedent argument um, for maybe not doing it. So, yeah, I'll, I'll just say that I think that's a really good point. Um, I can't speak to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I don't know how well organized her office is. But one of the other uh, Republican freshmen who is leaned more heavily in this direction is Madison Cawthorn. And Cawthorn's uh, um, office is extremely well staffed in terms of communication, yeah, with almost yeah. with almost no policy advisors. Yep. So Cawthorn is definitely treating this appointment as less of a legislative appointment and more as a political soapbox. And I would have every reason to expect that Green would do the same thing, given the opportunity. Yeah, well, yeah. Members in Congress are, are increasingly, um, you know, not lawmakers and just pundits instead. So, yeah, this is certainly in keeping with that. Well, if all of this sounds depressing to you, um, yes, you may feel... <laughs> that there's something wrong with American politics. <laughs> and that brings us to our main topic today. Uh, this is a really wide-ranging discussion, and uh, w this, is, uh, this podcast is a foray into future topics we're going to be dealing with here. But the broader question we're going to be addressing is, what's the current state of American politics? And assuming that there are flaws in it, I don't think there's anybody out there who thinks American politics is going great right now. Um, this is a really healthy system. What are some of the sources of our illnesses? We point to things like polarization, uh, tribalism, increased um, uh, political nastiness, uh, vitriol, the erosion of norms we just talked about, um, bad faith uh, in office, um, and in, in my to my language, the the growing um, lack of commitment to truth and objective reality. As a as a growing crisis, so what what are the sources of these things, um, and can we address them in a way that moves the United States back towards a healthier political culture? So as we even begin to think about these things, guys, what um, what do, would you where would you start if you were offering people a syllabus on political malaise in the United States? <laughs> what would you point to? Oh my gosh. Nick, you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think I think there's a, I think there's a lot of things. It's it's probably hard to sort of pinpoint exactly what the final source is, but you know, one of the things that I think, um, and this again kind of gets back to this is probably several things put together, yeah. but I mean, part of the core problem um, that we're that we're facing in a lot of ways is is essentially a lack of both political education, but also commitment to, um, you know, the basics of the American experiment by a lot of the, a lot of American citizens. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so if you look at, you know, I, you know, I could, th there are probably a lot of sources of this. I mean, starting with perhaps the fact that American Americans have historically done a very bad job of educating um, even young people in high school and middle school and such, as far as how American government works. Um, I can testify as someone who's taught um, quite a few folks an introduction to American politics in college, that people coming out of high school do not know how American government works and oh, do not understand the basics even of, you know, what the Constitution is, what it says, um, things like that. So, 
you know, so even just starting from sort of the raw material, people really don't have a good grasp of these things. And that uh, gives us a lot of problems right from the get go, just in the sense that a lot of people don't have a good sense of what, mm. what they're even talking about when it comes to having a political discussion. Um, so that's, you know, so, and, and I think that also leads to people not having a strong commitment to some of the basic elements that preserve a Republican or Democratic, and again, I mean those terms both in the small versions, right? Republican as in Republican ideals, you know, Republican tradition that goes back to Plato and Aristotle and the Roman Republic and such, where you say, you know, the rule of law matters and things like that. And, and then, of course, democracy, which says, you know, ultimately it's we the people. You know, people just don't have a good sense of what that looks like. And so, you know, if you, if you have this idea that you say, well, we think democracy is important, which means that regular people get to vote, people get, you know, and their votes matter and, they, and their votes count. Um, and then, you know, you have the rule of law that basically sets up an apparatus whereby the will of the people and their votes lead to policy or lead to certain people being in charge. You know, if people understand that and appreciate it, then it sort of circumvents crazy claims like we've heard from someone like Michael Flynn, who says, well, I have a mob in front of me, therefore, um, we're we the people, and so we ought to be able to get what we want, because we're a mob of people. Um, and if the mob doesn't get what it wants, then therefore the people's will has been circumvented, right? If you, if you don't understand how American government works and what democracy means, then that might make sense to you, um, as it made, seems to have made sense to a number of people <laughs> in the last few weeks. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, but as soon as you actually have a basic education in American uh, government and those, you know, what the what those things mean, then that doesn't make sense to you. And, you know, you realize that that's actually an attack on the American uh, on the American system and democracy and, and the Republican ideals. So I think that's sort of a basic place to start is just people, you know, we always have this joke that it's well, I say it's a joke. It's not really a joke, but it's sort of become a joke in political science that, you know, democracy relies on an educated citizenry um, and having just really not having that even at the most fundamental level i think is is we're seeing the erosion in some ways of what that what that means for american for american politics right i want to jump in real quick and just say you could in my opinion is you could live temporarily with a with a willfully ignorant populace if that willfully ignorant populace was at least um willing to be um supportive of institutional authority I, 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 yeah yeah and, and i was gonna say actually i think that's that's the situation we've had for the last you know 100 years <laughs> give yep. or take you know you go back and it's pretty clear that it's not like the situation happened overnight like you know if you interviewed the average person 100 years ago they too probably wouldn't have a good sense of how <laughs> the senate worked and things like that um or even a basic sense but they would have trusted the institutions and mm -hmm. and 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 you know rational yeah. leadership at least for the most part so it's worth noting that up until really watergate congress even had relatively high levels of public trust yep. and certainly the federal government had high levels of public trust and that eroded dramatically because of vietnam and in the wake of watergate and was aided and embedded by uh the Reagan administration being hypercritical of the federal government as an instrument of policy. And there's some real ideological reasons to, for them to, to have done that. I'm not here to, to litigate those. But what happened was you took away the, you no longer had institutional knowledge, you no longer had an educated populace. And then you took away their investment in the institutions, in their trust. And finally, you took away their belief in its authority. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, the situation we find ourselves in now. 
Yeah, and I'll just sort of add another layer. So you know, a lack of knowledge, and then you and then you add sort of a lack of trust, um, and then we could add to that sort of a susceptibility to manipulation and lies, yep. and leaders that are willing to do that, right? So, so for example, we saw you know we talked about this on this podcast. We saw in this recent election because of the the weird way elections had to be held, mail in ballots had you know were had to be counted you know, in different batches than regular ballots. And so some states posted their mail-in ballot results at a different time than their regular ballots, right? Which led to sort of the results as they're being sort of put on the web in real time, these sort of dramatic shifts in sort of in the election outcomes. And a lot of people were genuinely confused by that. Um, but it turns out there's a good explanation for that. It's just different ballots were counted and reported at different times. There's nothing nefarious about that. But Basically, there was an opening there for politicians, people who knew better, media personalities to step in and to twist those facts into lies and to use that as a basis for explaining how the election was stolen, right? And when people don't know this is how the electoral system works, and we actually have electoral system that's really hard to rig and to it's really hard to commit you know serious election fraud that can overturn election they don't know these things right they don't have the knowledge they are also prone to mistrust elites and mistrust the government they are more susceptible to these lies and then they buy into it right and then and then they get very angry and and some of that's understandable right um they actually you know genuinely believe that the election is stolen um or that there was some something nefarious going on and of course they want to do something about that leads some of them to to take drastic actions i'm not excusing it but but that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in yeah and, and you know i guess if we're sort of like building up the problems of, you know, yeah. focus. And again, you know, I feel like for me anyway, this is where it starts. I mean, it starts with ultimately, you know, I still, I guess maybe I'm naive in this in some sense. I mean, I still do believe American government is somewhat, you know, we the people. So the problems ultimately trace their way back to problems in the people if there's, if there's problems. But I mean, we also have the problem of, uh, you know, basically, and, and this again is spinning off of this, but it's a problem with people knowing which media sources to trust or understanding what it means to have journalism. Um, you know, I've kind of ramped up my uh, understanding journalism um, elements to my introduction to American politics courses over the years, and especially this last semester, um, I have really made it sort of a central tentpole in the course. Um, and interestingly, I mean, just as, as an example, obviously, I won't mention any specific students, but I used, uh, you know, an interview with a with a very respectable journalist um, from the Washington Post uh, discussing how she carries out her job um, as part of the assignment. And I had students listen to it and basically explain, you know, the process she goes through, how she decides who to trust, who not to trust, how she can figure out, you know, the, the method she uses to figure out if somebody's lying to her. Um, and, you know, she had a lot of examples, including a, a sting by Project Veritas that tried to um, show that she was susceptible to lies. And of course, she actually did a counter sting um, and outed the person who was trying to uh, who was trying to get her because she was so good at ferreting out who was and wasn't telling her the truth. And so, you know, so I had students listen to this. And what really struck me was a large number of students said, this person is a good journalist. I don't think journalists are like her. Hmm. And it was just sort of like stunning to me. You know, it was sort of like one of those things I had sort of like built the assignment, of course, you know, to try to show that like, look, if you if you're looking to uh, a good journalistic outlet, this is the kind of person they hire. But even when confronted with that, you know, sort of the reaction of students is to say, well, 
I don't think that's actually what happens. <laughs> and so, you know, it's it's sort of, to me, it's sort of like a microcosm of like sort of the, the crisis we're facing where like people don't understand what journalism is. Once they hear what journalism is, even then they're still sort of like, but I don't think that's what happens. <laughs> you know, if people did this, I would trust it, but I don't think they do. Even though you've yeah. just heard that like, this is in fact what people do. <laughs> right. Well, in in one sense, yeah, there's, there's a misunderstanding of journalism, but there's also just a lot less good journalism, right? Well, um, there's true. good journalism. To, there's there's good journalism to be found, right? Um, but it's hard, um, and it's hard when places like you know, in which there are good journalists, right? At New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, there's good journalists at those at outlets, but there's also really bad journalists, and then there's just pundits, right? And and it's hard to sort of trust, you know, institutions that employ good journalists when those institutions themselves are doing things that are actually very, very bad, um, are, are bad journalism and that are sowing seeds of discord and distrust. Um, and I could go on a rant about that. But, but you know, most of a lot of what we see, you know, certainly everything we see on, on, you know, on cable news and at a lot of different media outlets, it's, it's not real journalism, it's just punditry. It's sort of, you know, um, advocacy journalism, not sort of your true, um, true sort of more objective type journalism. When you say that there's, I, mean, I understand that there's always been muckraking and yellow journalism, and there's been good quality, um, uh, well-trained, object, more objective journalism. My I guess my question would be, how are those proportions changing and is our political climate influencing the change in those things? For example, is it that we have still just as many good journalists as we've had in the, in, in, uh, in other eras? It's just that there's just this uh, proliferation of scuttlebutt and bad faith journalism, or is, do we actually seeing a proportional or uh, a real decline because of, you know, the tech crunch that's basically killing off newspapers, are we seeing sort of uh, um, an emptying out of, of, of newsrooms? I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess I think part, part of what you just noted is certainly one of like at least three things that are going on. I mean, one of them <laughs> yeah. is certainly, um, you know, there's less good journalism because like, you, as you just said, there's less newspapers and there's less outlets. And mm -hmm. As you get fewer and fewer newspapers and outlets, um, you get less and less good journalism, and especially at the local level. I mean, those things are just right. really just evaporating. And of course, it's often at those more local level that you train up journalists to move to the bigger places, right? And you sort of get the best to move on to the national outlets. And so as you lose the training ground, right, you're losing people moving on up. And so, you know, so that's certainly one element. I think the other, another element, and you kind of mentioned this too, right, is the tech crunch, right? So as we go forward, there's more and more uh, online outlets that have, you know, that lack any kind of accountability. And, um, you know, they become increasingly, they, they are increasingly partisan. People mostly want to hear what they want to hear. And if you, you know, and so, you know, when you're, when you're not sort of forced to confront journalism that might tell you facts that are inconvenient for you or that, you know, don't, don't say exactly what you want to say, then, you know, you tend to go there. And in fact, Ezra Klein, who's somebody who, um, has just written a book recently uh, called, you know, Why We're Polarized. And this is a big part of what he identifies. Which I'm assigning in my senior SEM class. Thank yeah. you. There you go. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, I, I'm reading it in my introduction to politics class. We're reading it there. Oh, look so, at you. Um, Fine. Be that <laughs> one. I know. 
it'll be uh, anyway. But Ezra Klein is you know this this is you know as as you know as as you know Chris since you're also reading right. I mean he he pens a lot of it on that right where he says. Um, you know, basically people, people don't want to hear things that tell them they're wrong. And if there's an outlet that will never tell them that they're wrong about something, then they go there. And so then that creates financial incentives, um, destroys other outlets. Um, and yeah, does all kinds of, all kinds of stuff that way. Um, and then I think too, I mean, there's also just, um, you know, and I think, I think, I think part of it too goes to, you know, there is, there is this question about what it means to have, uh, objective journalism and um, you know and I guess I guess this is maybe where Matt and I might differ in shades at least um, where I do think the post and the Times are still fairly robust um, institutions I think they still have um, you know are lar- are largely objective um, when it comes to to most of their uh, you know journalism as such um, but I do think, you know, that the meaning of those terms and what people look for when they're thinking about that has, is shifting. Um, and I think to some degree, you know, maybe our expectations, uh, are changing to some degree. Um, and that that has also made it more difficult in some ways to be a good journalist. I mean, I mean, one example I'll just use is, um, you know, the times has basically made it impossible for any journalist in their newsroom to tweet anything, um, that expresses an opinion. Um, and while they don't, they haven't been universal in the application of those rules, they're pretty strict about it. And I'm not sure that that's what it means to be objective, you know, and I think that, you know, the over, um, emphasis of those kinds of, of rules in some ways is actually undermining, um, or at least causes us, you know, to question journalists in ways that aren't necessarily useful and it's kind of stunts, um, even good journalism in a lot of ways. All right. So one topic down i have to ask you guys do you both agree put it on the board you need to have a robust fourth estate in order to have a good <laughs> functioning healthy democracy yes absolutely okay uh, we can agree on this <laughs> so we, we, we need uh good not just freedom of the press but really actually good objective journalism for a healthy political culture and to the extent that we've cut into that either with uh, hyperpartisanship for um, fiduciary gains, or just because of the erosion of the institution, um, then that has been that is one of our precipitating conditions. Right. Uh, I mean, I just want to say too. I mean, so I mean, I think journalism plays a big part of this. I think social media is very much connected into this. You know, we we find ourselves in these sort of echo chambers that are that are structured by the media choices that we make, right? The media outlets that we choose to sort of consume, Um, but also of course, social media as well, which also has similar financial incentives um, to put things in front of us that sort of affirm our views or that perhaps even um, cause us to get riled up so that we keep returning back to the social media um, so that we can participate in the outrage, get the dopamine hit, um, that's involved in in the outrage, right? And so we keep coming back so that advertisements can be put in front of us. But this is part of sort of a larger a larger problem um, of just sort of this this tribalism um, and this sort of identity politics taken to a new level um, in the United States. And now identity politics has been been around for some time, but I think one of the I was just thinking about this over the past few days, like one of the interesting things about sort of, 
sort of the sort of the American experiment um, that has made it successful in some ways. And maybe if we can retrieve a little bit of this, we can we can make some progress in dealing with these problems. One of the things about this sort of the American experiment is this sort of individualism and this sort of this this sort of cultural democracy, um, this idea that that individuals can't be sort of essentialized or easily reduced to being part of a particular class or tribe or group identity. And that's something that's kind of been part. Now, you, there's always been that right in the United States, but there was a lot less of that during the, you know, the, the first few centuries of American political development than you had, say, in Europe, for example, where where you could see someone and know what their class is, know um, what their life was, know what their what their station right in in sort of the, the society and the economy was. And well, the thing about America was that you, you know, you could meet someone and you really couldn't assume a whole lot about who they were, what groups they belonged to, how much money they made, what their politics was, right? Um, and and this was something that was fairly unique to the to the American experience. And that's not to say that there wasn't stratification or segmentation, right? We have always had hierarchies, always had tribes, always had groups, but but they weren't as firmly entrenched. Um, in the United States, but but we're, we've sort of moved away from that, right? So we've had, you know, first on the left, but we get this now on the right, this this thing called identity politics, where basically, you know, um, everything about who you are is reduced to sort of one characteristic, um, and and one characteristic becomes the thing that all the rest of your life sort of revolves around. So it used to be the case that identity politics was merely about sort of race or gender or uh, or ethnicity or sort of nationality. But now, now identity politics revolves around political ideology and party, right? And now the most salient sort of political identities um, can be, be boiled down to the ideology and the political party that we belong to. Um, and so this has you know, resulted in us basically sort of entrenching ourselves in in our respective tribes, um, assuming we know everything about the other side, assuming all of the angels are in our camp and all the demons are, you know, in the other tribe, right? And so so it makes the other side easier to hate. It means we don't have to think about the ways in which we disagree because we just assume the other side is wrong and wicked and evil and all the positions they hold are because, in fact, they're all demons, right? Um and so we we have to use power to squash them because if we don't squash them, they're going to come squash us first. And so, so um, politics becomes just a means to means to you know preventing that from happening. It's it's I could go on, but but this sort of tribalistic, sort of identity politics driven sort of hatred and vitriol and distrust is I think really at the core of sort of the the problems that we have in this country. And I could go on, but. Um, it's just, yeah, I think, it's really sad to see. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think a lot of what, uh, you know, I, 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 I think a lot of that's very true. And I think part of what, um, you know, part of, part of what that, part of what that looks like too, is it moves any kind of political debate um, away from policy itself. Right. Um, you know, to the extent right. that you're talking about specific policies that moves you to some degree outside of the realm of identity because there will be different people who are benefited or not benefited or who like or dislike particular policies across, you know, across different, different issues and different, uh, you know, different, different, uh, yeah, different, di di uh, and, and different things. But uh, as soon as it just becomes, you know, an us versus them, then any kind of possibility of having those kinds of cross, you know, 
even something as simple as bipartisanship, but even beyond that, you know, cross group, or as Madison would say, cross faction yeah. <laughs> alliances, yep. um, you know, between different people with different different interests and different uh, identities, it just right. sort of evaporates. Uh, right. If we were really good at having uh, cross factional identities right now, we would <laughs> find a robust debate about what the speech Donald Trump gave at the uh, January sixth rally actually constituted incitement. Mm-hmm. No, no one is debating whether or not it constituted incitement. Either right. you're a de- either a Democrat and you assume, of course, he led the riot and he was secretly planning it, um, or you're a Republican and think that the whole thing is hogwash. Um, there's no one actually debating whether the extent to what he did was was uh, meaningful, and yeah. that's where we would be if we had this kind of thing that you guys are describing. Yep. Yep. Guys, this is frustrating. Um, I, <laughs> to say I, the I, least, we're we're nowhere close to even uh, um, on unloading our entire syllabus. So we're going to continue with this topic in our next podcast. Mitch, I hope you can come back and join us again because um, we're going to continue. We have so many things to consider. Uh, just a little bit of a taste of where we're headed this uh, this uh, spring. We're going to be talking about um, historical precedents for uh, what this um, what our American condition looks like. Are we Britain? Are we Rome? Are we, uh, I don't know, Carthage? We'll figure it out. Um, we'll We're see. America, Chris. Come on. I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Back to our first point. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, and then we're also going to talk about whether there's anything we can, uh, we're, well, before we get to this, uh, we're going to talk about some of the other um uh, issues about truth in politics, about Christian nationalism, about the role of social media, the rise of populism, the intersection of populism and Christian nationalism, um, and maybe even more short-term effects. How much does COVID play a role in America's political discourse? But the end of this, what we want to be able to ask, ask is, can we pull out of this spiral? Things seem bad. They seem like they're getting worse. Is that Are both of those things true? And if they are, can anything be done about it? That's where we're headed. I'm glad we're glad you're along for the ride. Buckle up, people. <laughs> Sounds like a very cheery time. I know. Just you know what? <laughs> it's gonna be negative twenty-two here, Mitch. You make yourself a cup of hot cocoa. <laughs> you think about the continuance of the American experiment. That's what you do. Yeah. Just bring comfort food mm. with you, whatever it is, to the to our podcast for the next few yep. weeks. You're gonna eat, you're gonna want some carbs. You're gonna want some sweets. <laughs> All right. Stressing with my friends. I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm Chris Moore. Thanks for listening to us. You can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Um, make sure you subscribe to the podcast channel. Besides Election Shock Therapy, we've got a number of other great podcasts. Uh, things like Video Store, Avatar with Academics, uh, Bookish at Bethel is kicking back off now with the new semester. And there's going to be some other new things in the podcast channel as well that I'm pretty excited about. So thanks for listening. And until I, we're back, oh please, can I jump Mitch. In real quick one, yeah, real, real quick, So I've been. Uh, let me just let me just make my own little advertising pitch here for some of the other shows. Um, so I've been really enjoying uh, book. Uh, what is it called? Video store with, uh, with 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 Barrett Fisher, and I particularly enjoyed the recent episode on singing in the rain. That was so fun. Uh, as somebody who loves musicals and uh, you know likes some of these classic things, that that episode in particular was uh, was especially fun. Can I tell you? Just a little, like one quick thing about Singing in the Rain, and I promise we'll yep. sign off after this. So, Singing, <laughs> Singing in the Rain is a Fred Astaire movie, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, 
back, uh, one of the things that I um, have in common with Dr. Crum is we both attended The Ohio State University, uh, Dr. Crum for his undergrad and I for my uh, PhD work. And one of my uh, PhD committee members, uh, one of my advisors was John Mueller. And John Mueller um, is now at the Cato Institute. He's a brilliant guy. But one of my favorite stories about John is that um, long into his career, a long established, well-regarded political scientist, got the stomach flu and was home for like a, like a two day stint, that kind of stomach flu where all you can do is lay on the couch and watch whatever's on TV kind of thing. <laughs> and he happened to catch singing in the rain and <laughs> fell in love with it oh. and became, wait, wait, it gets better, became an expert on the dance movies of Fred Astaire, wrote a book about Fred Astaire and his movies, eventually choreographed his own musical. So guys, <laughs> I ask you as fellow political scientists, why have we not choreographed our own musicals yet? <laughs> uh, all right yeah. thanks for listening folks go watch singing in the rain and go royals <laughs>